Okay, everyone, welcome, welcome to show 11 on Crypto Voices. Very excited today uh, to have our first guest. Uh, I'm here with Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Fernando, how are you? Hi, Matthew. And we are going to introduce Dr. George Selgin today. Dr. George Selgin is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and Professor Emeritus at the University of Georgia in Economics. He is an expert on a broad range of topics within the field of monetary economics, policy, macroeconomic theory, and the history of monetary thought. He is the author of many books, including Less Than Zero, The Case for a Falling Price Level in a Growing Economy, Good Money, Birmingham Buttonmakers, The Royal Mint, and the Beginnings of Modern Coinage, and most recently, Money, Free, and Unfree. He blogs over at Alt-M, that's Alt dash m.org. Dr. Selgin, welcome and thank you for being our first guest on Crypto Voices. Oh, I'm glad to be so, uh, Matthew. It's an honor. Thank you. So Crypto Voices, we talk about crypto economics first and foremost. That's Fernando, myself and Fernando's interest where they lie the most. But we like to start a bit broader with you as you have a uh, vast uh, experience and knowledge to draw from. So the first thing I wanted to do is uh, I understand yourself, along with Kevin Dowd and Larry White, you have founded the Modern Free Banking School. Can you briefly describe the school of thought that this, this is on monetary and economic policy, free banking? And if you do have time, what does it actually mean to have founded this school of thought? Well, uh, I, I never thought I was founding a school of thought. Uh, I thought that I was doing research on uh, how a banking system without a central bank functioned, and I don't—I can't speak for Larry and Kevin, but uh, I don't really think that—that uh, uh, that from my own point of view, that this had anything to do with trying to start a new school. It's true that as a result of our various inquiries into this subject. We've formed a, a, a rather positive view of free banking, and we've said so. We've described how these systems worked in the past and how some of the same operating principles might be taken advantage of in, uh, in uh, 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 modern monetary systems, uh, even in the absence of a gold standard. But, uh, but I don't, from my own point of view, I don't see this as a different school of thought. It's just a different subject being addressed uh, using uh, fairly orthodox tools of monetary analysis. And so uh, naturally when the system is radically different, it has different properties. But there's no new economics going on in the sense of different kinds of analysis or theories. It's just an inquiry into an overlooked subject that uh, we all feel deserves more attention than it has gotten because uh, its record is, act is actually pretty good in those cases where it's been approximated. So it's, uh, it's a more modest uh, uh, contribution. Other people have labeled it a school of thought, but I think they're just speaking loosely about a group of people who have a, a similar interest and have reached similar conclusions about this uh, uh, relatively neglected subject. It is true that um, uh, in the history of economic thought, uh, there was a debate in Britain in the aftermath, mainly, of the Panic of 1825, uh, which is usually presented as having been a debate between members of the so-called currency school and members of the so-called banking school. In revisiting that debate, Larry White has uh, argued, I think convincingly, that there were really three schools of thought involved and that the third one, which he calls the free banking school, had ideas that not only were distinct from those of the other schools, though with some overlap with each, but uh, in his view were the sounder uh, views. So there has, there is this reference to a free banking school of thought in the past, but but that's that's what economists do when they look at past debates. They put labels on these people. They group them together. It's a way to understand what's going on, to systematize it, to have a better grasp of, of the, the way ideas evolved. Uh, but I don't 
uh, think that it's all that common for economists to look at themselves as members of a school of thought, though you could say that the free bankers has helped revive interest in an old school. So that's another part of this whole terminological issue. So let's, uh, let's back up then and let's look at sort of the long arc of, of money and value and, and what it means. When I look around, and I'm very interested in this topic, you know, I feel there's some cognitive dissonance uh, when we look at the many competing views of money or competing schools of thought, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, two common perceptions, though, if I could just start very broad, in my opinion, are that money is either one, an asset, or two, a form of debt. The asset side looks at money through the lens of perhaps the regression theorem from Mises or maybe gold or maybe even barter. Uh, this one seems to many, I think, in, in uh, perhaps libertarian circles or classical liberal circles to be more just or more real. So that's one side. And then the other side is this so-called credit theory of money or credit view of money. And that seems to be embodied by many schools as well and used by central banks in our world today. Money is debt. So... Is it possible uh, for you to elaborate on if either major view of this asset side or debit side of money is correct? Is money an asset or is it a debt? What, what is your definition of money in these terms? Well, the, the simple answer and I think the correct answer is that there is no one <laughs> uh, category into which all kinds of money uh, fit, particularly if you're talking about historical monies. Uh, money is anything that's a generally accepted medium of exchange. And in the past, uh, all, all, all forms of money are assets. That's easy. They're assets of some kind. Some are real assets like cold coins in the past, or wampum, or tobacco. Those things are not IOUs, they're real assets. So they're assets, but they're not anyone's liabilities. But other forms of money, including those that are most widely used, in fact, practically all forms of money today, that is of generally accepted uh, media of exchange, are financial assets, meaning they consist of paper or digital units that are IOUs. And so they are both assets to their possessors and liabilities to their issuers. Uh, Now, uh, it gets a little bit confusing when you get to monies issued by central banks like the Fed, the ones directly issued by them, fiat monies, consisting either and most obviously of the paper notes that circulate uh, officially in various countries and also practically of uh, central bank deposit credits uh, that can be instantly converted by commercial banks into that same paper money. Those are assets too. Obviously, they are financial assets. And at least from a bookkeeping point of view, they are the liabilities of the central banks that create them. So they fall into the category of IOUs. However, they're odd IOUs. John Exter was a president of the Federal Reserve Bank back in the 60s and 70s, and he used to like to call them IOU nothings. And that's because once upon a time, uh, in many of these cases, these were true IOUs convertible into gold, then convertibility was removed, and that's when they became what Exter calls them. They're still liabilities in a fundamental sense. Uh, They're still IOUs in some sense, but they're they're like uh, what economists call uh, perpetuals. A perpetual is a bond that uh, uh, never matures, right? And uh, it might yield interest, but it never matures. You can never cash it in. So it's an IOU never. An IOU never is like an IOU nothing, obviously. They're kind of similar. Right. But um, a Federal Reserve note is, as it were, a circulating... Uh, perpetual security, bearer security that yields zero interest. (laughs) There, (laughs) I said it. Um, It's an asset and a liability. So the point is, there are many types of monies and one can't try to answer that all of them are liabilities because some in the past have not been. By the way, Bitcoin, if we are to regard it as a medium of exchange, it's, an, it's a funny example 
of something that resembles a financial asset, but actually it is not a liability. It is not an obligation uh, of anyone. And so I have called it synthetic commodity money because in that respect it is more like a commodity money like gold or silver or wampum or tobacco. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, the debate can get very complicated very quick. And uh, before we get it in further about Bitcoin or about what money uh, could be in the modern sense, I do want to push a little bit further on maybe more of a philosophical view. And the only reason I, I do that is because I, you know, I, I've read the regression theorem. Uh, I've, I am sort of interested. I have that classical liberal bent. Um, but then you have others who, who argue for the credit theory. And I'm thinking of someone who maybe is not so involved in politics. But I first, the best definition I read about the credit theory of money was in uh, Sidney Homer's uh, history of interest rates. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, uh, I'm, I'm broadly uh, summarizing the idea. But he says basically at all times, uh, money can precede barter, it can precede coinage, it can precede commodity because it's simply an IOU and, that, and that's a form of money. And, and the example I use, I would really like your comment on it, is uh, the most classical uh, or, or basic thing we could think about early human civilizations, say like two cavemen <laughs> in a cave. The, the idea is I'll make the fire today, you make the fire tomorrow. Now we can maybe argue that the fire is some sort of an asset, but that's a credit transaction, is it, is it not? Like it, when we're talking the earliest forms of money, Yes, it is a credit it is a credit transaction, but it's not money. It's not a monetary transaction. There is no general medium of exchange there. There's simply a, 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 a credit exchange between uh, two persons. Credit does exchange does occur, and it has occurred before there was such a thing as monetary exchange. What distinguishes monetary exchange is that you've got some entities, whether they're financial or real assets, that are treated by an entire community as... Uh, acceptable media of exchange. What you're talking about is interpersonal credit. It precedes money, but it also precedes it only in ver to, a very, to, to a very limited extent. This is a debate I had with David Graeber and other anthropologists. In, in a family unit, a small village, we can have plenty of credit transactions. But the minute we're talking about a, a large open society where strangers interact, that kind of uh, transacting uh, will not allow for many potentially mutually beneficial uh, trades to occur. It's in that context of trade among strangers that you need something more than these uh, uh, credit exchanges or credit trades, credit transactions among well-acquainted persons. The absence of adequate trust calls for some other means for dealing with people who you may never ever see again. And that's when money gets started or when it got started historically. And it took the form of real assets originally like cowrie and wine and ultimately coins. These are the devices you use before the rise of, of even fancier credit substitutes uh, to trade with strangers, especially on a one-off basis. This is why if you're an explorer going to search some tributary of the Amazon and <laughs> whatever, you know, uh, 1680, you're going to bring with you stuff you think you can trade with, and you're not going to expect to go to these people and say, I, I'll give you something now, and you give me something in the future, because you're going back home, and they're never going to see you again. That's where monetar monetary exchange becomes crucial. So, to clarify, yes, small primitive societies, pardon the term, but some f villages where people know each other and interact, Credit can arise in those systems, and credit implicitly is used all the time. In your family today, you have credit transactions, if you like. You, do, you take the garbage out today, somebody else washes it, whatever. In, as we progress to a world where strangers interact, 
monetary exchange in its most basic form of exchange of commodities where the commodities are become universally accepted among this broader uh, group of people. That is the second stage. The next stage is yet another development of credit transactions where, mon where credit substitutes for money that are fixed denomination IOUs uh, denominated in commodities, that's the next stage. And then beyond that, we go to fiat money, which is another story altogether. That's the way it should be thought of. And, uh, and it's a mistake to, to confuse primitive credit uh, relationships with monetary exchange. Now, Dr. Selgin, we have three characteristics or uses or functions commonly associated with money. Let's say a store of value, so medium of exchange and a unit of account. So looking around the dollar and the euros, they are clearly units of account and media of exchange, but perhaps not so great in terms of stores of value, especially not over the long term. Now, gold clearly is a store of value or has been a, a better store of value, but not a unit of account, not today, or a medium of exchange, perhaps. Is there a money in history that has proven to have the attributes, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of accounts, all together? First of, well, first of all, almost any valuable commodity is a store of, or financial asset is a store of value. The question is, what are the better stores of value, right? Fiat money today, fiat monies are stores of value. They're not necessarily very good. Uh, but uh, but there's certainly stores of value to some extent. And if something weren't capable of storing value, at least to some extent, then it presumably wouldn't be a very good medium of exchange. The store of value function is basically not very interesting for that reason. And it's never been a defining characteristic of money. It's been an incidental characteristic. And almost in all cases, whenever we've had a money in the sense of a generally accepted medium of exchange, we you could identify other things that were better stores of value in the sense that they appreciated relative to the monetary unit. Nor do you want money to be uh, the best store of value, because that's equivalent to saying uh, that you want it to be the thing that appreciates most rapidly, which is to say you want a deflationary money, one money where uh, if it's used as a unit of account, all prices tend to fall relatively rapidly in terms of it. So the qualities of a good money aren't those of a, an ideal store of value. Store value is, an, is a way to gain return over time. Money is a device for accomplishing uh, exchange that works best when it doesn't appreciate or depreciate very rapidly. Uh, uh, so, uh, so the store of value thing really, we, really is a bit of a red herring and it's confusing to think of money as a store of value. I think we see that with Bitcoin today. People are very excited about Bitcoin because, in part because of the, the fact that it's appreciated so much. But that in itself doesn't uh, contribute much to Bitcoin's potential usefulness as a medium of exchange. On the contrary, it, uh, it's rather awkward. <laughs> and if Bitcoin were, in fact, a unit of account, uh, we, would, we would be in a, an economy with fairly rapid uh, inflation these last few years. Though, of course, I, I, want to, I, I hasten to add that if Bitcoin really were a generally accepted medium of exchange, its value would behave differently. Okay, um, the, the other thing is the unit of account. In practice, whatever medium of exchange becomes dominant, the unit of account will usually be based on that medium of account. Uh, this is a simple matter of convenience. Larry White has written about it. If you're a store owner and you expect to be paid in gold coins, uh, and the unit is, let's say, the pound unit, which sometime in the 18th century became a unit of gold, you're going to keep your books in that pound unit. You're going to pr quote prices in pounds. So the, the unit of account tends to adhere to whatever the generally accepted medium of exchange is. The only exception to that is when you have a, a medium of exchange, a money, that has been in use, but then you have a hyperinflation, then you find that sometimes they'll break away from that hyperinflating unit and 
quote prices in a more stable unit, even though the medium of exchange continues to be something else. So that's how those things, those different terms relate, unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value. But it's the medium of exchange rule that is essential to something being money, and it has to be a generally accepted medium of exchange to qualify. So I'd assume that Bitcoin's deflationary characteristic is perhaps its main disadvantage from a monetary theory perspective, but... Well, you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't want it to be appreciating if it was also widely, if it was also being used as money and treated as a unit of account, you wouldn't want it to be appreciating very rapidly because this, this means... That means that your wage rates, for example, would have to be constantly reduced over time, not money wage rates, and that can be very awkward, uh, uh, at least if conventional uh, uh, problems of wage rigidity were to continue in uh, a Bitcoin economy. But how did gold overcome this issue? Because gold as a commodity that was used as money also has a fixed supply, right? No. <laughs> Simply no. The supply of gold constantly increased. There was never a fixed supply. There constantly been more gold produced. It's true that uh, the, the amount of total gold in the ground is fixed in some sense, but that's never been relevant because the known gold resources have never declined. They always go up. It's the same with oil. We, ha we know about more oil now than we ever knew about before, and it's never ceased to be uh, produced. The known oil reserves keep growing, even though, yes, there's never, no, not a drop of oil has been created <laughs> for centuries, and yet <laughs> there's more and more of it. Bitcoin isn't like that. Bitcoin, we know it's 21 million, and that's that, at least for the old one. And uh, I presume for both, right? Um, but, um, but at any event, that's that. So that is a, an unusual case where production will eventually stop altogether. And uh, that has never been the case for past commodity money. Now, the, the appreciation of Bitcoin is not simply due to the fact that its supply is fixed. Of course not. Right now, we're in a period where speculative demand for Bitcoin has been uh, uh, strong and fluctuating. That has nothing to do with... Uh, that, that, that's a factor separate from the demand for media of exchange. In the case of gold... The demand for money always grew under the gold standard era, but the supply of monetary gold grew as well. And the result was that while we had mild deflation, we didn't have rapid defla deflation. And moreover, the rate of deflation was within bounds roughly consistent with productivity growth so that it was seldom necessary for money wage rates generally to decline. Prices declined, but not factor prices of output decline, but factor prices didn't have to adjust down that much or that often, and that meant that gold could be a tolerable medium of exchange and uh, basis for a tolerable unit of account. Now let's look, let's move forward and look at the, the broad arc of monetary and central banking. Uh, can you characterize what central banks were supposed or are supposed to do, especially when we compare uh, their central banks during the formation of the Bank of England, of the formation of the Fed and central banks today? So those are uh, all different cases and the, the, uh, the motivations behind the different central banks uh, uh, depend on what period we're talking about. The very earliest uh, banks to become known as central banks, including the Bank of England, the Bank of France, the Bank of Sweden, all of them had fiscal motivations. The, the chief concern of the their founders was to have a, a resource that could supplement the government's revenue, especially in emergencies. Uh, it was the same motive that caused more ancient uh, governments and medieval ones to insist on their a prerogative of coinage, not because they wanted to produce good coins, but precisely so that they could produce bad ones when uh, fiscal uh, uh, situ when the fiscal situation called for it. 
doing such. So it was all about money for the government. Nobody was giving any thought to these institutions, these proto-central banks, as sources of monetary stabilization, lender of last resort, monetary control. Forget about it. It had nothing to do with what went on. Over time, uh, in the course of the 19th and especially the early 20th century, uh, the, the central banks began to take on this more, let's say, uh, public welfare aura as institutions that were not only fiscally advantageous, but somehow advantageous for monetary stability. And I think that the root of that change in thinking uh, it was uh, a big part of it was Walter Badgett. Now I'm a big fan of Walter Badgett and his book Lombard Street, but but Badgett's been badly misunderstood. Badgett wrote one Lombard Street in 1873, and what he does there is to analyze the instability of the British money market, and he very clearly explains how the Bank of England's status as the central reserve holder for all of of uh, England and Wales and Scotland by then to some extent, uh, how that was the source of instability in the, in the British monetary system. He, he understands as well that this was an unnatural consequence of the bank's monopoly privileges that it accumulated over time. But Badgett's solution as he himself explains, is to try to patch this thing up by getting the Bank of England to recognize its special influence and to uh, act in a public-spirited way as what, what we now call a lender of last resort. So Badgett, Badgett was proposing a second-best solution. He was saying, look, the Bank of England's really a problem, but if it behaves according to these special rules lend during a crisis liberally at high rates on good banking collateral, then it can minimize the trouble it causes. He also says explicitly, the best thing would be not to have had this system at all, but we're stuck with it. It's too entrenched. We can't get rid of it. So this is what we should do. Later economists came to reinterpret Badgett as making a positive argument as to why every country needs a lender of last resort. And now that you've heard me summarize what Badgett's real point was, uh, you understand why I think that that's a travesty. That's a complete misunderstanding of Badgett. And in any event, we ended up with everybody thinking that every country should have a central bank. And with central bankers in certain parts of the world, especially the the U.S. and uh, British central bankers in the 20s and 30s, they went around lobbying for more central banks. And uh, all of this had terrible consequences, including, of course, the ultimate uh, 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 degradation of, of the gold standard, uh, which uh, was suspended in World War I by most of the countries that had central banks and, and then eventually by those that didn't. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the, the, you couldn't put that, that Humpty Dumpty back together again in a world of central banks. It just wasn't going to happen. So now we have fiat money where central banks are even more in charge of, of uh, how money behaves in all, of our, in all the economies of the world. And, and Ben Bernanke himself, he, he's always basing, or at least he always based his uh, justification for the intervention they, they carried out after the financial crisis, specifically on Walter Badgett's uh, recommendations and also the experience of the 1930s, of course. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, all I can say to that is that uh, it's a long way from what from the rules that Badgett espoused to what the Federal Reserve actually did uh, in 2007 and 8. And uh, I think uh, Bernanke uh, really is misleading people if he, when he suggests that everything the Fed did at that time was consistent with Badgett. It's, it's simply not true. The, the, the Federal Reserve uh, 
uh, lent it's uh, it created first of all a vast array of emergency lending facilities that in itself was not necessarily inconsistent with budget but the fact is that these facilities all had different terms and different conditions and different institutions involved in at least some of them and i believe in most cases uh high rates of interest were certainly not what the fed was uh, charging and i just I don't mean that the rate that it was giving rates that were low relative to prevailing market rates in the middle of the crisis that that's to be expected. I think they were low by any reasonable understanding of what what uh, rates should have been charged based on the based on the collateral involved and I'm not alone by any means in thinking that in some cases emergency money was extended on the basis of of uh, no collateral at all. Uh, uh, simply the uh, franchise value or whatever of uh, of the banks that were being assisted. Uh, uh, I could go on, but uh, the fact is that uh, that it's it's really a stretch to put it mildly to compare the Fed's conduct to the kind of conduct that uh, that Badgett would have recommended. Is it possible to have a safe banking system with safe lending practices and deposit taking? without a central bank depends on how safe you want it to be <laughs> it's a trade-off right uh, anytime we think about lending in its ordinary sense of commercial loans to consumers businesses and uh, and uh, and others then uh, uh, lending is a risky activity of course there's always a risk of default uh, there's always a risk that uh, of late payment and all that so to the extent uh, that uh, that banks engage in lending and also supply media of exchange nowadays in the form of transactable deposit credits then then that money that part of the money stock isn't perfectly safe now i happen to believe that that's okay that's a trade off that has always gone hand in hand with bank money although obviously less so nowadays with deposit insurance than was the case in times past but it's 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 traditionally been a trade-off the question isn't whether we sh- w- w- whether we can have safer money of course we can by not allowing banks to make risk to have risky assets deposit creating banks the question is whether uh, some risk is worth it and the verdict of of society meaning people allowed freely to choose whether or not to accept some risk has always been favorable there have been experiments with 100% uh, reserve banking or it's a perfectly safe equivalent in the past but in almost every case as i've written about on altem uh these 100% banks only survived because they were protected by legislation that uh, first of all in some cases uh, provided for their funding because remember they they're not earning any money by lending money by lending and second often legislate protected by legislation banning fractional reserve alternatives so they didn't have to worry about their customers preferring to deal with riskier banks for the sake of earning some interest because those those the customers weren't given that choice uh, where where the choices existed and it has existed most of the time in history fractional reserve banking has always prevailed and that means that people don't want banks that are perfectly safe or money that is perfectly safe they'd rather have a little less safety and a little more interest and i don't think there's anything wrong with it it becomes bad when things go bad when you have banking systems that are clearly uh uh failure prone with many losses suffered where it seems that the risk return trade off has gone way too far on the side of risk and away from safety in every historical instance where that appears to be the case the problem hasn't been uh allowing banks to be free to develop and and pursue whatever their customers would let them the problem has always been government interference with the the prudent the development of prudent banking in the united states before and after the civil war regulations were the sources the main sources of financial instability same thing in other countries 
when banking systems have been most free to develop, like Scotland in the from the uh, mid 17th to mid sorry mid 18th to mid 19th century is Canada for most of the latter 19th century early 20th those systems were very very safe it, it takes governments to make banking systems dangerous and they are very good at it <laughs> and and just to be clear to our listeners uh, both Scotland and Canada you have researched thoroughly and, and they did not have central banks at all during that time no, there were no central banks in those systems. There were uh, numerous uh, banks uh, issuing notes competitively. By numerous, though, I mean dozens, not hundreds or thousands. In the United States, we had thousands of banks issuing currency, both before and after the Civil War, though with very different systems in each case. But that was a peculiar result of our laws that prevented banks from branching. So instead of having uh, a a couple dozen banks that had branch networks throughout the nation, as Canada did, as Scotland did, as some other countries did, in the U.S. we had these lousy little banks, you know, (laughs) that only had one office in one town. And and that's how the system uh, continued uh, until the 1990s practically with some... Uh, limited exceptions. This fragmented banking system is a very good example of how government interference can create unsound banking uh, that wouldn't exist if the banks had been more free to pursue what they regarded as their best business strategy, which would include for most banks, not all, but for most, uh, having branch facilities so that they could diversify their assets and liabilities better. And beyond branch banking, is it not true that uh, different banks in Scotland and Canada, they they issued sort of their own currency? Is that not they did, but um, but we should be careful here. They did issue currency, and they, these currency notes were distinct in both cases. But they were all part of a standard monetary unit, uh, uh, a commodity money unit or metallic unit. In, in uh, Scotland, it was the pound sterling, which was a common unit for Scotland and the rest of Britain. Uh, and in Canada, it was the Canadian dollar, which was a gold unit that uh, in the 19th century was still equivalent to the the U.S. dollar, gold dollar. So a Canadian bank, let's say uh, the Bank of Halifax or the Royal Bank, the, these, the notes of these banks would be distinct. You could tell their designs, the pictures. Every bank clearly indicated which notes were its own. But they were denominated in common units, and they circulated at their face value relative to those underlying units. So if you took a banknote that was issued in Halifax, and you, no matter which bank, and you found yourself with that note in Vancouver in 1895, the note was still worth its full value. And the reason for that is that there would be a branch of the Halifax Bank in, 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 in Vancouver that would happily accept it. And for that reason, so would merchants over there. Which was not the case in the U.S. because branch banking was outlawed. Right, exactly. Yeah, the big, the big, uh, uh, one of the big beefs against U.S. banks before the Civil War was that that's, that, that situation did not hold if you were so unwise as to take a bank note issued in New England where notes were generally quite sound and the banks were pretty sound, but if you took that note far enough away from New England, it wouldn't command its face value. It would be discounted because the only way you could get gold for the note was to transport it back to the source in New England. And someone had to bear those costs and that would be reflected in what they were willing to pay for that that note and why it would not be current everywhere. Yeah, Fernando and I could go on about those topics, I think, all day. But uh, let's. Yes, oh, you and you and me both, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Uh, let, let's move on to Bitcoin. All right. So when we look at Bitcoin, I, I know you've written about it as a commodity-based money. Are, are you saying that Bitcoin is then solely an asset-based money? It is not. It doesn't have anything to do with with a debt or credit side of the balance sheet. 
Yes, that's right. There's no credit. No one owes anything with Bitcoin. When, in fact, it's the in a it's a very it's a very interesting case of uh, something that resembles a financial asset because it's essentially it's digital, uh, and uh, and so are many financial assets today. Uh, but it is a final means of payment. Once you've transacted with Bitcoin and instantly, uh, s settlement and payment are the same. There's no further activity. There's nothing. No one owes anyone anything. Much as if you handed somebody a Federal Reserve note in payment for some good, there's no further settlement. Unlike when you pay a check or use a debit card, some other transacting has to go on mainly settlement among different banks, before it's all over with, before all the IOUs have been paid, before the money has been actually collected, as it were. So you don't have any of that with, uh, with Bitcoin. It is, it is a, uh, a non-credit money. There's nobody owes anything, any, anyone anything. When, we, when you hold a Bitcoin, no one owes you anything. You've got an asset. No one has an, a liability. W one follow-up to that. I, I presume the same could be said with gold, correct? Because when you hold the gold, yes. no one... Absolutely. In that sense, Bitcoin resembles gold more than it resembles uh, uh, a debit, uh, uh, a balance at a bank, a deposit balance or something like that. And one thing to maybe go on there, I don't know if you thought about this or maybe to challenge the point, but, uh, you know, because I'm constantly questioning my understanding of Bitcoin myself, but with gold, you know, okay, it's been mined, it's been minted or coined or, or whatever you hold a bar or a coin. So you have it. No one else has it. It's your asset. No one else's liability. Mm -hmm. With Bitcoin, I believe, mm -hmm. I, I agree with everything you just said, but with Bitcoin, there is still this interesting ongoing phenomenon of the network and miners that their their spending of electricity is is sort of a liability in in the network sense, and that if they don't continue to generate hashing power or to make the network more secure or to pay electricity bills and staff and and whatnot, uh, there is some there's some sort of circular interaction, asset and debt interaction. To me, it seems like there are some liabilities, at least, of paying your electricity bill in keeping the Bitcoin network and 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 and, and therefore the bitcoins that you hold in your hand valuable. Well, I think that the that uh, I think that the only reason here it it sounds like liabilities are involved is because you're using liabilities now loosely for what I would simply call costs. The Bitcoin system is costly, uh, uh, so is a gold system. A gold system, somebody has to uh, mine the gold, somebody has to mint the coins, and the coins have to be maintained. They tend to wear out, they have to be replaced. Uh, all of those things are costs of maintaining monetary systems, but, but, but they're liabilities only in the sense that you're using liabilities and costs as synonyms. They aren't liabilities in the, in the strict sense of IOUs. Nobody owes anybody anything. So that's the difference. Bitcoin does involve costs, and uh, uh, and it, indeed, it's as costly as any commodity money. The, one of the one of the features of a commodity money is that the stuff that the money is worth uh, uh, the stuff it's made of and what it costs to produce that in equilibrium. And the, of course, or a gold coin is not going to be worth any more or any less in equilibrium than the the cost it takes to make another one just like it. And that's exactly true of, of, of Bitcoin, and that's one of the reasons why I call it a synthetic commodity, uh, because it, it is like a commodity in that sense. But we should be careful not to confuse the costliness of Bitcoin with the fact uh, that uh, with, with its being a liability in any strict sense of the term. We've talked about uh, Bitcoin's fixed supply. So do you believe Bitcoin has the attributes to be good money? I mean, can it have all the attributes we've talked about above? I mean, does it need all three? And perhaps I'd, say, I, I'd add, would you say its fixed supply might even prevent Bitcoin from becoming a widespread money? Or maybe to follow up on that, a widespread unit of account. Well, whether Bitcoin becomes a unit of account, 
will depend most of all on whether it becomes widely used in exchange. Because as I said, uh, the unit of account tends to be attached to widely, tends to be derived from whatever is widely accepted in exchange. So unless Bitcoin can become money, it's unlikely to become a unit of account of any importance. And that is, unless it can become a generally accepted medium of exchange, it's unlikely to become a unit of account. Now, then that, the question is, how, how likely is Bitcoin to become a generally accepted medium of exchange? And I'm afraid my answer to that is, I don't think it's very likely. It has gained ground, uh, and that's quite an impressive performance, considering what it's up against. But I, I believe that Bitcoin's uh, use as money is, is uh, a relatively minor sideshow in the bigger story of the blockchain and its many applications. Ultimately, ultimately, as money, Bitcoin might suffer from a macroeconomic point of view from the fact that there's a, an absolutely fixed supply. But it must be said that that's really not what matters to uh, what's impeding its success. People in deciding what to use as money, first of all, aren't really, don't really care about macroeconomics, right? I'm not going to say to myself, oh, I want to pay, I want to use this as a medium of exchange because it's good for the macroeconomy. I could care less. I want to know whether it's convenient for me to use it and whether other people will be willing to accept it and how, at what costs of transacting. Uh, but with regard to those criteria, well, <laughs> the biggest hurdle for any innovative alternative currency, not representing simply the established official one, is that network effects are always strongly favoring the established money. The dollar is far from perfect, but its network is huge. And as, uh, because of that, the dollar is the easiest currency for people to use, whether they wish it were or not. And uh, that's why established monies tend to be entrenched and hard to beat. Only when they really screw up, <laughs> like when you have a hyperinflation, uh, do other currencies start to really gain uh, a, foot, a foothold if they're allowed to. And even then, those alternatives tend to be currencies that have large networks elsewhere and so are adopted uh, as new currencies in one place where they weren't used before, but they were already widely used elsewhere. Bitcoin could ultimately play that role. We've seen remarkable progress, and it's true that the more widely used a, a currency becomes, or a, a potential currency, the greater its potential growth in the future. So there is a feedback that's positive. But Bitcoin still has a very long way to go, and I'm afraid that this fork experiment uh, ultimately is going to reveal just, <laughs> just how tenuous Bitcoin's uh, appeal as currency still is. Uh, because uh, what, to the extent that Bitcoin Cash doesn't uh, really uh, succeed as a rival to old or classic Bitcoin or whatever they're calling it lately, I think that that is evidence that the main, the chief interest in, in Bitcoin all along had been an interest that was not specifically uh, an interest in an alternative medium of exchange. Nick Sable, who wrote BitGold and was one of the major influences to Satoshi Nakamoto, recently commented that Bitcoin is destined to be high-powered money. So that Bitcoins and Bitcoins on blockchain would be the base money, the monetary base. And he sees the future of the system as having different third parties or other parties issuing, let's say, digital notes against Bitcoins proper on the blockchain. Would you say this could yes. perhaps circumvent or overcome its fixed supply issue by reducing the demand by Bitcoin proper? To some extent, yes, indeed. Um, first of all, Bitcoin definitely would be a high-powered money. Again, it's not a liability, so as such, it's it's high-powered by uh, in the usual understanding. It's the ultimate means of payment. It could serve, therefore, as a reserve against which banks would issue their own IOUs. 
you could have Bitcoin banks, no reason why you shouldn't. And by the way, this is one reason why people who say Bitcoin has the advantage that there's no, uh, um, uh, no banking involved. Well, uh, maybe that's an advantage, <laughs> but maybe not. I think that just as gold uh, 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 as a standard led to the establishment of bank-created substitutes for gold that were inside money or IOUs, the same would tend to happen if Bitcoin were a popular medium of exchange. Banks would then find it in their interest to receive deposits of Bitcoin, issue IOUs denominated in Bitcoin, which could also be digital, of course, and make uh, uh, and acquire interest-earning assets uh, uh, to the extent that they didn't need to have uh, 100% Bitcoin reserves. And uh, this, all of this would happen with Bitcoin just as it has happened with other forms of outside money in the past. But it'll only happen if Bitcoin becomes popular. It just won't pay for me, for example, to go out right now and open a Bitcoin bank. Uh, it's The market is very small. At some point, it might be worthwhile. And if that were the case, we could have a situation where the limited supply of Bitcoin itself uh, does not preclude having a much larger total quantity of money. But here's the problem. Although you could have, with fractional reserve Bitcoin banks, you could have, let's say, 10 times as much uh, money as the supply of Bitcoin itself or some multiple, that, that system doesn't by itself guarantee future growth of the total. It explains a one-time multiplication based on this new technological innovation but then uh, the reserve ratio settles down to whatever it is, and now you're still stuck with a total money supply that has only very limited growth potential, if any. And that's when the, the system will once again could become deflationary uh, if, it's, if it coexists with a, a, an economy with a growing population and labor force and all that. Yeah, you pretty much answer my next question. I mean, it was about the sort of be your own bank or banks in a Bitcoin world, but uh, be your own bank does seem to be, although I love like sort of the idea in principle, it does seem to be a uh, simplistic euphemism. If you look across, you know, what banking is supposed to do. I don't know if you have anything more to say regarding that point. No, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I think that uh, the basic principles of banking uh, on Bitcoin uh, there's no reason to think they would be any different. Of course, the regulatory uh, uh, environment could be different, but we have no idea what that would look like. As far as I can tell right now, you, uh, I don't. I, uh, it's not clear that uh, a Bitcoin bank would be legal. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but it couldn't have access to the ordinary payment system. Uh, it would have to create a whole, it would have to be part of a whole new system of interbank settlement and all that. Um, but in principle, there's no reason why a Bitcoin banking system cannot have the properties of any other banking system uh, uh, that has existed. Uh, and it could have the properties of a free banking system uh, uh, in some sense, uh, if the banks are free enough to develop. You would have a supply of basic outside Bitcoin money that is itself not manipulable. And you would have a banking system creating substitutes where the banks are disciplining, disciplining each other by constantly uh, calling on one another to settle accounts. Uh, 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 and uh, this, is, this is the self-regulation that was at work in the Canadian and Scottish and other free banking systems of the past. Are you uh, willing to put a probability of maybe a system like that ever developing? No. <laughs> the problem <laughs> is that it, it, uh, you start right off the get-go. Get uh, you've got first, uh, you'd have to assign a probability to Bitcoin becoming more widely used as a medium of exchange. That's hard. Right. And uh, I couldn't couldn't do it scientifically, then I'd have to sign a probability to what the reaction of the uh, regulatory authorities would be, whether they would uh, try to regulate these banks, prohibit them, or what. 
between those two imponderable probabilities, uh, uh, multiplying them, you get an even more <laughs> difficult to ponder probability. It would be sheer guesswork on my part. And I always like to distinguish between that and what I know as an economist. And in this case, what I know as an economist is practically nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's fascinating. Dr. Selgin, I have one final question for you. Uh, it, it's sort of backing up broader picture and involving the role of the economist uh, and, and money. At the risk of going into two fields that I don't know much about, I, I've heard... Uh, I'll phrase it like this. I have heard uh, some physicists who are also engineers saying that in physics, they're doing the math. They're trying to sort their theories. Maybe they become law. Uh, They're doing the math and the the more abstract. But the engineers, they are the ones that make physics work in the real world. And they're not always perfect. They can be 99% true, 99% accurate, 98% accurate. Not all buildings have 90-degree right angles, but yeah. in, the engineers are, are the ones sort of in charge of making the real world work uh, in, in the physics uh, sort of paradigm. Can we say the same thing about economists, or do you have a thought about who is the arbiter, the ultimate arbiter, who tilts the field uh, of money? So I presume the economists, we can relate to physicists in this example. Yes. Who are the engineers? Who are the arbiters or the tilters of the playing field when it comes to money? Well, uh, I think you've already identified uh, the, 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 the correct answer. First of all, it's certainly not economists. Second of all, it's not government. It is the, it is the engineers. It's the, it's the technical pioneers. Uh, they're the ones who, who have changed the, the landscape uh, regarding what money is in the most fundamental ways throughout history. Governments have come in and muscled their way in and monopolized things and prohibited things. They've never innovated worth diddly. Economists, of course, are trying to get a handle on what's going on, but they're not the, the innovators. It's the technicians, whether it's somebody figuring out how to uh, improve uh, a screw press or how to get more gold out of uh, a mine using cyanide or somebody coming up with such an innovation as Bitcoin, which is one of the most stupendous uh, innovations in the field, even if it hasn't gained that much ground strictly as a medium of exchange. It's a, it's a, a, a incredible. And just to, to emphasize the importance and, 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 and the leading role that technologists, that, that, that experts in technology play, I compare, to me, Bitcoin reminds me of the story perhaps apocryphal, right, of the, of the physicist who explained uh, elaborately why it was impossible for a bumblebee to fly, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? You have all heard that story that in theory the bumblebee couldn't fly. Uh, whether it's true or not, uh, let's just suppose some physicist believed that. And I can say that he, many economists, certainly I'm one of them, would not have believed that such a thing as Bitcoin could happen. And we just you know, the theory said, uh, as far as I was concerned, that this, this couldn't fly, even as far as it has flown, mind you. It's not, it's not flying that high as in money, flying high in value, but that's different. Anyway, we're pretty clueless, we economists, and governments are even worse, because what they do is they find an innovation like this, and then they ask how they can exploit it, take it over, and turn it into part of the apparatus they're already running uh, to their own benefit. And so we have central banks now toying with the idea of issuing digital currencies, uh, blockchain currencies, uh, and of course that's just the slippery slope to uh, 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 abolishing or prohibiting the private alternatives. That's where you inevitably get, uh, as I've argued recently with some uh, economists who've been proposing that the Fed should have well, never mind. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's, it is very much uh, monet- the field of monetary history is one where, like in so many others, the, the real geniuses and the real movers and shakers are the technical experts, the engineers, the innovators. But of course, their innovations can do more or less good depending on what governments and economists make of them and whether they can understand what their true virtues are and how those 
can best be exploited or whether they just get in the way and ruin everything <laughs> and uh where that's that's think i think that that uh uh is always uh uh, uh, something to be aware of that technology can always improve things and give us new possibilities but then the question is what does it take to allow it to do those things I think that's a great way to end it uh, Dr. Selgin I certainly don't think you're clueless about the landscape really appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, sharing your views and it's a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much Dr. Selgin Thank you very much, Matthew and Fernando. I, I, uh, I enjoyed it myself. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.